So we could really state that this year, Manishtana Halayla Hazeh, why is this night different than all other nights? So my teacher, my rabbi, Rabbi Abitan, would tell us a story. He said there was a king, and this king was a nature fan, and he decided to build himself a natural zoo. And he had all the animals in their own environments, and he was very happy, and he built this beautiful lagoon. And inside the lagoon, he showed off his turtles, and on the side of the turtles, there were fish and lizards, and he had these two big crocodiles. And as he spoke to the crowd, introducing them and showing them his lagoon, his young daughter was sitting on this little wall, and she fell in. The king yells out to the people, Anyone who saves my daughter, I'll give him anything he wants. A minute later, there was a splash. A guy is in the water. He's grabbing this little girl. He's handing her out. They pull her out. He reaches up. They pull him out. He's standing there dripping wet. The king gives him a hug and he says, Whatever you want, just tell me whatever you want. And he says, Your Majesty, I have just one request. And that one request is this. Please tell me who pushed me in. So we find ourselves in a situation and the question is, how did we get here in the first place? And if we understand how we got here, we could begin to understand how we get out. Only then do we have the clues that we need to get out. There seems to be a universal agreement that we are in a stage called Ikveh de Mashicha, the footsteps of the Mashiach. So many miracles, which would have been unimaginable to our grandparents a century ago, became reality. We have seen the ingathering of the exiles. We have seen a return to the land. We have seen miracle and miracle in Eretz Israel. As the Nevi'im wrote, we saw the desert bloom. We have seen the rebirth of the Torah. More people learning today than at probably any point in the history of our people or at least in the last 2,600 years. No one we know is sick, like, our Hashem, like, everyone, even if we do know that there's a girl, okay? But, like, at the end of the day, we're also allowed to... Like, it doesn't take away from... I don't know how to do Wait, that. Wait, okay. You're so cute. You're still living your life. It's the It's the It's the It's the It's the Okay. Okay. <laughs> this is Zoom. Okay. So most of our rabbis would tell us that we're in the generation of the Mashiach. Rav Chaim Vital, he quotes the words of his rabbi, Rabbi Isaac Luria, the Holy Arizal, who writes in Sha'ar HaGilgulim, in the gates of reincarnation. He tells us in the future, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses himself, will reincarnate and return to the last generation. As it says, you will die with your fathers and rise up. He says also though, in the future generation when Moses comes back, this final generation is the Dor Hamidbar, the same generation that left Egypt and they will reincarnate in this generation. In essence, that's us. Later on, he continues and he says that the generation of the desert, along with the Erev Rav, will reincarnate in the final generation. And he quotes from the prophet Micha, and he says, as in the days of leaving Egypt, just like we were when we left Egypt, so we are today when we leave Egypt. Says, 
Moshe as well will rise among them, since they are all from the secret of Da'at. We have to make an assumption that we today are the generation of the Mashiach. And thus, when we talk about leaving Egypt 3,500 years ago, we're talking about ourselves. It was really us, us who left Egypt. Furthermore, we all find ourselves home, literally in some form of house arrest. I want you to consider for a minute, oh, my wife is commenting, that the men among us may feel like bosses when we're in work, when we're in the Bet Midrash, even in the synagogue we could say we're the boss. But now we're home, and there's no doubt, at least in my house, that my wife is the boss here. Or maybe my My daughter, (laughs) or my other daughters. But quoting the Arizal further, he says this amazing thing. He says, this is the secret why that generation, meaning our generation of 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 the Mashiach, will be dominated, each Torah scholar, by his wife. The meaning is that the generation of the Midbar, who is us, sinned with the golden calf, but the wives did not give their earrings while the men did and the men sinned. So this time that we're home, we're under the rule of our wives. Let's go back to the beginning. Well, not the very beginning. The Shelah Kadosh takes us to the Brit Ben HaBetarim. This is when Hashem appears to Avraham, and it says, A great darkness and fear overbecame, overcame Avraham. The Shilah Kadosh quotes the Arizal, and he says, Emma is fear. This refers to the generation of Hanoch when the world was covered one third with water. He says, Hashecha is darkness. He says, This refers to the generation. That number. He says, Chashecha is the generation of darkness, and this refers to the. It's the 917. Call this person. 917. <laughs> okay. So says, the word Chashecha, meaning darkness, refers to the generation of the flood, which represents a failure of the sun and the moon to perform normally. And the question is, what does Noah have to do with us getting stuck in Egypt and with us today? It says further, the word Gedulah refers to the Tower of Babel with Moshe, his speech impediment being equivalent to the confusion of the language at that time, his being placed in the basket. Okay. His being placed in the basket. Hey, children. You got to mute your phones, people. Sorry, please try to mute your phones. Thank you. David, can you please tell people You can either mute your phone on your on your telephone or on the far left on the lower corner. There's a. Uh, 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 there's a microphone. You have to press mute. Rabbi, oh, you can. Rabbi, you can mute everybody yourself also. No, I'm not the host. 
But I'm not the host, Mars. Jessica's trying to get the host. Sorry. (laughs) Okay, so everyone, you can mute themselves on the bottom left of the screen. Okay, so sorry. So we're saying that Gedula refers to Bavel. What do we have to do with the Tower of Bavel? What do we have to do with getting stuck in Egypt and our situation today? Finally, says that being coped up, Moshe in the basket in the in the seat in the in the reeds with the Nile River is like the destruction of Sodom. He says, so what do we have to do with Sodom? So really, to try to understand what's going on, I think we really have to go back to the very very beginning of time. Adam Harishon is created, and his soul encompasses all of our souls. And that soul, that Adam, was tested in Gan Eden. Would he have self-control or not? Could he wait for Shabbat or not? The rabbis tell us that the Nachash, the snake, promised that man, if he ate from the tree, would be like God. And it was Hashem who told Adam not to eat. So in Adam sinning and eating, what is he in essence doing? He's in essence sinning against Hashem. But then when Hashem approaches Adam and he says to him, Adam, what did you do? And he says, God, it wasn't me. It was the wife you gave me. Either he's blaming his wife, she's sitting next to me, or he's blaming Hashem for giving him his wife. So the sin of Adam is a double sin. It's a sin against Hashem and it's a sin against man. We next have the story of Cain and Hevel. Cain has an idea to bring a sacrifice. But he brings from the bad part of his crops. Hevel brings a sheep. But he looks at the fire. And out of jealousy, Cain kills Hevel. Here again we have a sin against God and a sin against man and man. What's going on? Let's Correct. Jeff, Jeff, I think you're giving another class there and we hear you. I don't know what to do. I don't what? Don't do anything. Don't. Right. I can't mute anyone. Wait, wait, we can hear you, baby. What? Everybody join a new meeting. Sin of uh, Cain and Hevel is really a sin of man and God and man and man. <coughs> we come to the generation of Noah. And Noah's generation has the ability to fix everything that was messed up by Adam. And what happens... They start, they have Hamas, they steal from one another, and they rebel against Hashem in the ways that they are. And they, Hashem brings a flood. After the flood, Hashem tells Noah to come out of the ark. Noah comes out of the ark, and he builds an altar. He offers a sacrifice, and Hashem promises he'll never bring a flood again. 
At that point, Noah becomes very depressed. And the, the question is why? Is because Noah realizes at that point that had Noah prayed and done what he was supposed to do before the flood, if he's going to prevent a flood from ever happening again, he possibly could have prevented the flood from happening originally. And what was Noah's mistake? When Hashem told Noah, you go into the ark and the rest of the world is going to be destroyed, Noah listened. But when Hashem tells Moshe Rabbeinu generations later, step aside, I'm going to make a new nation of you and I'm going to destroy the people. What does Moshe say? Sorry, Hashem. If you're going to destroy the people, wipe me from the book, get rid of me. So we see that in the, in the generation of Noah, they messed up. And in the generation of Noah, what did they do? They committed sins between man and man and man and man and Hashem. So they reincarnated again after the flood. And they come back as the generation Dor Haflada. The generation of the Tower of Babel. And there, they have a relationship between man and man. But they lack in their relationship between man and Hashem. And Hashem disperses them and their language is divided. So Hashem gives all of them another chance. And they come back another time as the generation of Sidom. And they're born into Sidom. And if you think of what Sidom was like, Sidom had everything going for it. Every luxury, all the wealth, they had everything. And what did they do? They said, we have everything and we don't want to share everything. So they locked out the guests and they treated people horribly. Now, Sodom is going to be destroyed. But we have to see that 25 years earlier, Abraham had an opportunity to save Sodom. How? There was a war between four kings and five kings. And in the war, Abraham's nephew was taken captive. And Abraham goes after the kings who captured his nephew and he defeats them. And he saves all the people, including the people of Sodom. And the king of Sodom comes to Abraham and he says to Abraham, Abraham, you're entitled to the people and you're entitled to the wealth. Please give me back the people and keep the wealth. Abraham says, no, I don't want the people. I don't want the wealth. Had Abraham taken the people, he could have changed all the people of Sodom and they would have become reformed. They would have become a new people under Abraham's direction. But what happens is 25 years later, they're so evil that Hashem has to destroy them and Hashem comes to Abraham. Why does he come to Abraham about the destruction of Sodom? Because Abraham has a responsibility over the people of Sodom. And now what will happen once the people of Sodom are destroyed? They will come back as the descendants of Abraham. The descendants of Abraham born into Egypt will be a reincarnation of those people who were born and destroyed in the flood who were given an opportunity to come back at the Tower of Babel but failed, who were given an opportunity with every benefit of life in Sodom but failed. And in each case they fail, either ben adam lechavero, between man and man, like in Sodom, or ben adam lemakom, or between man and God, like in the Tower of Babel. 
The Khatam Sofer teaches that Moshe Rabbeinu told Paro that we will go out with the young and the old, with the sons and with the daughters, and even with the cattle and sheep. And the Khatam Sofer says, why is Moshe telling this to Paro? Because he's demonstrating to Paro that the basis for being able to leave Mitzrayim is our achdut, our unity. What got us into Egypt in the first place was a lack in our relationship with each other. It was a lack in the relationship between Cain and Hevel. It was a lack in the relationship between the people who lived during the ten generations between Adam and the destruction of the flood. It was a lack between the people of Sidon. Says, and we have to come back. And how do we leave Egypt? By showing Achtut. But the rabbis tell us that even as we cross the sea and we may have had Achtut, even as we saw the miracles, the miracles happening at the sea, what did we do? We were carrying on our shoulder Pesel Micha, an idol in our knapsack. So we got out even though we weren't ready to give out. Because the only way we would be ready to get out is if we shed both sins. The sin between man and man and the sin between man and God. Har Sinai, 40 days later, uh, seven weeks later, what happens? We receive the Torah. And 40 days after that, we worship the golden calf. You know, when Hashem comes to Moshe Rabbeinu and He tells Moshe, I want you to take my people out of Egypt, Moshe says, I don't want to do it. I don't want to take them out. Why is Moshe reluctant to take them out? Moshe says to Hashem, Shelach beyad tishlach. Send out in the hand of the one you're going to send out. Who is that that Moshe is talking about? Eliyahu Anavi. Moshe is telling Hashem, I don't want to be the guy to do half a job. If you want me to be the Mashiach, okay. If this is going to be the final redemption, okay. But if this is simply to take them part way, I don't want to be the guy. It's interesting that even after they cross the sea, the words we, ha- we hear are, Az Yashir Moshe. Then Moshe will sing. When will Moshe sing? At the final redemption. And this is what the Arizal is saying, that the final redemption is those same people who left Egypt will be alive in the generation of the Mashiach, that's us. And Moshe will sing in our generation. We have to remember, we left Egypt in April. By June, we received the Aseret HaDibrot, the revelation at Sinai. By July, we're worshipping a golden calf. Moshe Rabbeinu goes up to ask for forgiveness. Rosh Chodesh Elul, September, he goes back for the second set of Luchot. And he returns back to us on Yom Kippur. A day later, we begin to build the Mishkan. And the Mishkan is is dedicated on Rosh Chodesh Nisan. A year after we left Egypt. And the first Passover that we celebrate as a free people is that Passover, a year after we left. The Tanakh talks about only three Passover celebrations. Three glorious Passover celebrations. What are those three? It talks about the Pesach celebration at the time of Yehoshua, 
when we were first coming into the land. It talks about the Passover celebration of Yoshiahu HaMelech, who was the grandson of the wicked Menashe. And it talks about the celebration at the time of Ezra. Why those three celebrations more than any other? Because Yehoshua comes in after the 40 years in the desert. And the rabbis tell us that during the 40 years in the desert, they did not give Brit Milah. And since they did not give Brit Milah, they couldn't celebrate Pesach. And therefore, after 40 years in the desert, Yehoshua is going to celebrate the first real Passover in 40 years since they left Egypt. And thus, it's a great celebration. After we have the terrible, terrible king, Menasheh, we finally have his grandson. And his grandson comes in. And his grandson does this, the, the Tanakh tells us, and the children of Bnei Israel who were present. Okay, maybe Reuben could fix it now so that we could lock everyone out. Mute. Except me. No, mute. mute, mute. Reuben, can you, can you mute everyone except me? He's muted. I'm taking care of it now. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. So it says, it says in the Tanakh, And Bnei Israel who were present kept Passover at that time. It says, There was no Pesach like that kept in Israel from the days of the Shmuel HaNavi, nor did any of the kings of Israel keep such a Pesach as Yoshayahu kept. It says, Everyone came to celebrate. The rabbis say that he gave out a million sheep to people to bring, us, to, bring to slaughter and to celebrate with. Why was his Passover so special? Because for generations they did not celebrate. And finally we have the celebration of Ezra Sofer. When the people are coming back to Israel after the 70 years of Galut, of the first, the first, uh, the, the, after the destruction of the first temple. Imagine the celebration that they had, finally coming back and being able to have Pesach again in a Ben HaMikdash. Now, if you think of those are the three that the Tanakh brings, why those three? Because they were all celebrated after a long period of time when we had no celebration. Could you imagine for a second what the celebration is going to be like when we finally are able to celebrate Pesach again after 2,000 years of exile? Now, there was one Pesach that we celebrated one Seder that we had before we left. But the question is, how could you celebrate Pesach and the exodus from Egypt before you leave Egypt? Can that be considered a Seder? Imagine the fear that the people had sitting at that first Seder. Are we getting out or not? All around us, people are dying. They're putting blood, not on the outside of their doors, not on the outside of their doorposts, but on the inside of their doors and the inside of their doorposts for them to see. They're told, nobody leave your house. The mashchit, the deadly force, is outside and given free reign to attack. But within our homes, we're safe. The Torah tells us, Se labayit, se labayit. What does that translate to? A sheep for a house. 
Only in the house could they be protected. But what's very interesting is we had to eat that first sheep. We had to have that first seder still in Egypt. And we had to put on our belts, meaning we're ready to go. And put on our shoes, meaning we're ready to walk. But we weren't leaving until the morning. So why a belt and why shoes? Because even though we were still in Egypt, and even though we were under some form of house arrest, we had to be able to visualize and to see ourselves as free. We were still locked in our homes, but we had to see ourselves as free. We had to wear our shoes, wear the belt, put our clothes on, put the, put the bag on our shoulder, and that's why we say, Mish'arotam serurot. Only then could we leave the next morning after we were able to see ourselves as free people. I want to tell you all, today, we are those people. The story we tell, the story of Pesach, of leaving Egypt, is not of some people who left Egypt. The story we're telling on Pesach is us. Because we were there. Each of us were there. And each of us is back again today to be redeemed again. We need to anticipate Mashiach. We need to anticipate that this is our redemption. In Nisan we were redeemed and in Nisan we will be redeemed. But they left early. Now, 3,500 years later, we have the same challenge. Two, actually. They were one nation. Am echad, belev echad. We need to apply those lessons, one nation with one heart, and reach beyond the six feet, the four amot that we're all locked into today. Stay six feet away from each other. That's the Dalit amot. You know, we say that since the destruction of the Ben HaMikdash, Hashem is locked in the Dalit Amot of Halakha. Hashem is locked in Dalit Amot, and we are experiencing being locked in the same Dalit Amot. So we have to apply the lessons, the lesson of Amechad Belevechad, today, even from within these Dalit Amot. We have to reach out to each other. We have to reach out to help people. We had people running to go shopping and buy things for other people who were stuck home. We have people doing countless acts of chesed. People donating money, people giving, people helping, even though we're locked within our Dalar Amot. But also, and just as important, we all see that Hashem has announced Himself to the world. Anyone who thinks that these are just coincidences is not looking within the coincidence to see Hashem. Anyone who thinks this is just happening is really blind. It was for our generation, the bottom of the generations, the end of generations, us today, that Chabakuk reduced the mitzvot down to one mitzvah. He says, Sadiq be'emunah, Sadiq, a righteous person, will live by his emunah. We are, tr- are being tested in our faith and our trust in Hashem. Hashem is telling us, listen guys, you're not in charge. You realize there's only so much you can do. You realize that it's not everything you can do. You have to have trust and faith in me. 
I saw one of the senators today, and he was speaking, I guess, when the bill was being passed for, uh, for helping all of us and all of the businesses. He was speaking and he said, when Bnei Israel would come to Yerushalayim, they would sing Shir Hamalot, he said. They would sing songs of ascent as they went up towards Jerusalem. And he said a very famous, a famous psalm that we say. He said that when they're coming, Bnei Israel into Yerushalayim, they're looking up to the mountains. What's the mountain? He said the mountain is Jerusalem. To him, the mountain was the seed of government. He says the world looks to their government. Americans are looking to their government. But we have to remember, Where will help come from? Help will come from Hashem. We have to remember and we have to have faith in this very, very difficult time. We're going to all have a very strange Seder this Wednesday, next week, a week from tonight. But it's not going to be so, so difficult. We're going to be somewhat alone. But at least we have a Seder. At least we're somewhat free. But the test in the Seder is, can we still have faith and trust in Hashem? There are too many people this year that are going to pass over Passover. They're going to pass over Passover. Not to have a Seder. We have to encourage everyone that on this Seder we each have to relive the first Seder that we had before we left Egypt. We each have to be able to visualize, have faith and trust that Hashem is going to take care of us. We are really in the days of the Mashiach. We have a choice. Either He could come or not come. And that's really up to us. It's up to us to be metaken, to fix the sins of all the generations before, and especially those generations who we were. It's up to us to fix the sins of the generation of the flood. We have to be like Moshe Rabbeinu and not like Noah. Noah locks himself away and he's not helping other people. Moshe says, no Hashem, don't destroy them. Destroy me if you're going to destroy them. We have to fix what we did in the Tower of Babel. We have to fix what we did in Sedom. We have every benefit, every gift, everything that anyone could imagine. But what are we going to do with the things that we have? Now more than ever, when people need us, we have to share those gifts. We have to reach out and help. And the, in, the instinct today is, I'm so nervous. Am I going to have a business? Am I going to have a job? Am I going to have a this? I'm not going to help anyone. I'm going to stop helping anyone. And the test on each of us is, are we going to be like the people of Sodom? Or are we going to be a tikkun and fix that and reach out and be amichad belevichad? I was listening to an interview, pa- interview from a Holocaust survivor. And I want to tell you the story. He says, it happened, I don't know, suddenly we hear that tonight is Pesach. Passover, as everyone knows, is the festival of liberation. He says, our barracks had 1,000 inmates who were Jews. And we thought, we have to celebrate. Tonight is Pesach. Afterwards, at that time, I didn't think of it. What did we celebrate? Liberty? Freedom? We were much more enslaved in the Nazi camp than the Jews in Egypt. In Egypt, did six million Jews die? Did a million and a half children die? 
Children were drowned in the, uh, in the Nile. But one and a half million children? They at least had some food in Egypt. What did we have? We were eating earthworms. But nobody questioned in that barracks that it was a festival, a holiday of liberation, and that in some way we had to celebrate. So everyone sat up in their cot. How do we celebrate? It's called the Haggadah. There's a certain ritual, a certain prayer that you say. I remembered the Manishtana. I said it with my childish voice. And the whole barrack, a thousand people, sings after me. Someone else remembered Shema Israel. Someone else brought up Anima Amin. And we kept singing songs. And can you imagine a thousand people singing? The SS comes in. Such a thing is unheard of. Singing in a concentration camp, in a death camp, singing. The SS soldier comes in with his rifle. And he says to us, if you don't go to sleep immediately, you will be shot. And it wasn't just a threat. We knew he meant it. So of course everyone hit their pillow. The plank of wood. Believe me, ladies and gentlemen, it didn't take 10 minutes. The SS had walked out of the barrack and we were up and singing again. And again he came in furious. Everyone go to sleep. If you don't, everyone will be shot. And we stopped and 10 minutes later we were singing again. And everyone was praying and singing. We couldn't dance, but we were celebrating the holiday of Pesach, the holiday of liberation. Do you think everyone was religious? Certainly not. Most of them were not. But at that moment, every real, everyone realized that it was Pesach, the day of liberation. Not one person protested. No one said, if you want to do it, go do it somewhere else. And sing there and pray there, but don't endanger my life. Not one person, not one person complained. Every one of us sang. Three times the SS warned us, you're going to be shot to be killed. We knew the SS did this, but we jumped up and we continued to celebrate. The soldier came in again. He looked around bewildered. We were sure this was our end. And ladies and gentlemen, he looked around several times and he just walked out. He just walked out. So whatever Pesach that we're going to complain about, let's put it in perspective. Let's put it in perspective. Now there's going to be people who have to celebrate a Pesach alone. Celebrate alone. Now, we're not going to talk about the Zoom Pesach because even though I think that we can justify it, the rabbis are telling us not to, except in certain cases, and everyone should speak to their own rabbi. But imagine celebrating a Seder alone. I want to tell you a story, and this is how we're going to close, and this is a story my son-in-law sent me. A woman was complaining. She said, a few months ago, it was Pesach, and I was divorced and my ex-husband and I went through a terrible, terrible divorce, a terrible breakup. And we fought for years over our children. And we finally settled on a shared custody agreement. Which means that we would alternate Jewish holidays. 
So this last Pesach was my turn to have my children. My children were coming to me for the Seder. I was so excited. I did everything to prepare my house so that it was beautiful for me to be with my kids. I was so happy about it. I told everyone, my family, my friends, my neighbors, that my children were going to celebrate Pesach with me and we were going to be happy. Then one hour before Yom Tov, I got a call and for some reason, the kids couldn't come. I almost fainted from shock and heartache. And I was so ashamed. I already told all my guests that my kids are coming. How could I tell them now that I was going to be alone? I didn't have the energy to be with anyone. I was so depressed. I felt totally and completely numb. So I made a Seder on my own. It was the worst and most bitter Seder I've ever had. I just sat there crying through the whole thing. I was weeping that I think it's Pesach, but it feels like Tisha B'Av. I did not have to eat Maror. My entire life was Maror. I went through the Haggadah, I ate the Matzah, and the Seder took me 25 minutes. So I called Rabbi Jacobson and I asked him, did I do the right thing? Did I fulfill my obligation? Was it even called a Seder? Because it didn't feel like a proper Seder. So Rabbi Jacobson told me, and believe me, he said something unbelievable. He said, you prepare for hours and then everything falls. He says, lady, I want to tell you something. In 1988, the Lubavitcher Rebbe's wife passed away. He says, Ari approached the Rebbe and he said to the Rebbe, Rebbe, please come to our house. My mother wants to invite you for the Seder. They lived down the block from 770. The Rebbe smiled at Ari, shook his head. He thanked him profusely, but told Ari he would not be having a Seder with anyone else. He would be having it in his office alone. I was a yeshiva student at the time, said Rabbi Jacobson. So I had first-hand knowledge and I witnessed this myself. In fact, the Rebbe's long-standing assistant, Rabbi Groner, offered to stay with the Rebbe. But the Rebbe sent him home to have the Seder with his children. And so the great Lubavitcher Rebbe, the man who inspired countless people around the world for their seders. You know how many people come to a Lubavitch group seder in a typical year? He personally undertook to provide a meaningful Pesach seder for the army personnel in the Israeli army who were on duty. He said, and for people all over the world, for him, for him, he would be alone. A few yeshiva boys did not go home that night. We waited outside in the street. After a couple of hours, the Rebbe opened the door to welcome Eliyahu Hanavi and recite Shefoch HaMatcha. He walked outside, holding a candle and his Agadah, said the prayer, gave us a wave, then went back inside to finish the Seder by himself. My dear lady, said Rabbi Jacobson, if it was good enough for the Lubavitch Rebbe to have a Seder on his own, trust me, your Seder was perfect. He could have had a Seder with a hundred people, a thousand people, ten thousand people. He personally arranged for thousands and thousands of people to have a Seder from Kathmandu to Alaska, from San Francisco to New Zealand. But at the end of the day, he went and did a Seder on his own. He didn't need anyone else to be close to Hashem. He could be alone and be close and together with Hashem.
He didn't need validation. He sat alone and relived the exodus from Egypt. Rabbi Jacobson concludes, he says, I was only 15 at the time. But despite my youth, I felt sad that the Rebbe had nobody to be with him. Why didn't he invite anyone to be with him? Why didn't he go to someone else? He said, but after hearing the story of a woman alone, he understood that as a true leader, the Rebbe wished to empower all those souls who would ever need to do their Seder alone. He wanted them to know that their solitary Passover Seder was powerful, meaningful, and real. Jewish history and the divine presence would dwell at their Seder just as it does as a Seder that has many people there.